Well, let's bring in Muriel Protzer, Senior Policy Analyst with the BC for BC for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Muriel, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having CFIB back on. It's always a pleasure. I wanted to check in with you because this has been kind of a reoccurring theme. Some businesses do have mandatory mask policies. Uh, unfortunately, a few weeks ago, we talked about a grocery store in Vancouver that had that one of the first to bring in a policy, but was getting bullied, was getting, in some cases, so much negative attention, they decided to reverse that. Would it be easier for businesses if they didn't have to make that decision and it was a province-wide uh, rule? Well, you brought up a really good point. What we have right now is really uncohesive policy. You have some businesses who are mandating their own mask policy, um, while you have others who are simply suggesting or advising that their customers come in wearing masks. And that creates a lot of difficulty and awkwardness for businesses and customers to navigate when you don't have that cohesiveness. So when we're talking about enforcing a mandatory mask policy and introducing that regulation, that's certainly a preference. Um, to implement more health and safety protocols than resorting to sweeping business closures like we've seen happen in other provinces across Canada. Uh, Is there a fear here in BC? We are in the middle, almost to the middle of this two-week circuit breaker restriction. Uh, Is there a fear that if this doesn't work, we are going to see more closures? The fear and the anxiety is definitely being felt on the the ground right now for small businesses. We just had a new provincial health order come into play. A lot of uh, businesses who are in that physical fitness activity where you're close close proximity to other people, they've been shut down entirely. And understandably, there was case outbreaks in there and we need to do better and implement better safety measures. But the problem here is that those businesses were ordered closed. They once again shuttered with no revenue coming in and bills to pay. And the new health and safety protocols for them aren't out yet. They're not public. And so these businesses are just having to sit there and wait and hope to see that the the new regulations come out for them, that they can implement them in their safety plans. So that is a huge difficulty for businesses to have to navigate and swallow that. Uh, We had a a business owner call one of the other shows uh, just, uh, I think, the day after, a couple of days after these new rules came in. And I thought it was an interesting call because you don't often hear people asking for more enforcement, but saying that they really were applauding the move by WorkSafe BC when they said they were upping enforcement. This was a business owner that owned a small gym saying, we put in plexiglass, we distanced all of the equipment, we've done everything we can to make sure people are safe, we've uh, lowered capacity. But this person, knowing others in the same business, said uh, they knew of other businesses that weren't doing this and felt it was very unfair that while some businesses will take on that cost and make sure they're doing it, uh, if others were getting away with not doing it, there was no enforcement, then like we're seeing now, everyone gets shut down. And that exactly brings us back to the need for cohesiveness. We do need to call out the bad apples. We need to make sure that we're all on the same page. We are enforcing the same regulations and that they make sense. And we're putting the health care of not just the business owners, but their employees, their customers, everyone who visits them at the forefront. And right now we don't have that cohesive policy. Uh, We have a comment from a member that we received uh, at CFIB here. He was saying how his employees, they all wear masks as part of their COVID-19 safety plan to make their customers feel safe and that it can be really emotionally and mentally draining for those employees and he sees it on their face when they have certain customers who aren't reciprocating that same respect to them. Uh, Yeah, and it seems like such a a no-brainer. And again, unless you're somebody for some reason that you can't wear a mask, it seems like such a no-brainer when you see someone wearing a mask that, um, and we know now that that is being done to protect not that person, but to protect you, uh, that the least you could do would be the same back. Exactly. And right now we do need to be building consumer confidence. And for people who are more vulnerable or feeling more nervous about going outside, they will feel safer when those around them are taking extra precautions. So um, it it seems like the right move to make uh, with businesses right now being in this difficult situation where they're essentially policing and enforcing a non-existent mask policy that puts them in such a complicated, difficult situation, not just them, but their employees as well. Uh, Are there certain businesses you think that are more vulnerable or are having more of an issue with this? Uh, Well, right now, businesses uh, that we're seeing that are more so adapting their own mandatory mask policies are really those uh, brick and mortar stores where it might be even more difficult to have physical distancing measures in place or make sure that that's being um, abided to. Um, But for small businesses, I think uh, what's happening here is that 
the issue with having to police these policies without that government regulation to back up and in place, you have um, this difficulty where you could damage your relationship with customers. And we're at a time right now where small businesses can hardly afford to turn away customers. Revenues are at, uh, at still at a, a low for small businesses. Only a third are seeing normal revenues for this time of year. And so to have a, a mandatory policy that employees can point to so they're not having that situation of navigating how to deal with people who are very passionate about not wearing masks um, would help those employees feel a lot more safe. And do you feel sometimes, too, that people will make the off-the-cuff remark or, or say something, oh, we should just shut everything down, let's get a hold on this, without really understanding the economic uh, negative impacts of that and, and livelihoods that are going to be impacted? Thank you for bringing that up because that is such an important angle here. We do need to balance the needs of the economy. And I know when we say the word economy, it seems very vague and up there. But what we're talking about here is we're talking about jobs. If we have a second wave of closures here and there's no financial support measures in place to help support those businesses again, we are going to see more businesses having to close their doors permanently. And we've already started to see some of our main streets downtown having boarded up windows. And that's not something that we can afford because once we do overcome this significant great hurdle that we're all going through together, um, we need to have jobs to return to. People need to have a livelihood to support their families. All right, Muriel, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. Well, joining me on the line now is Dr. Victoria Lee, President and CEO of Fraser Health. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I wanted to start by talking about the fact that there are so many festivals and celebrations coming up, and that message has gone out to people uh, to be careful. How confident are you, though, that people are going to follow these rules and not have these types of gatherings? You know, British Columbians have been applauded for our efforts and collectively working together. We were able to bend the curve the first time, and I believe that uh, we will do it again. I think there's been COVID fatigue and sometimes, uh, uh, I think, difficulty and challenges, with, especially uh, with the uh, celebrations that are coming up in terms of how do we find creative ways to celebrate differently. So we're reminding everyone social gatherings of any kind right now are risky and under the orders they're not permitted. And to rethink how we can honor special occasions like these in small safe ways, perhaps by creating new traditions along the way. And in fact, we've heard some really great stories of how people are planning to do that. Uh, So what do you suggest then as far as if people do still want to do something but not break the rules? Yeah, I think um, there are ways that we can make a point of connecting with our extended family, friends over, um, in a, not physically, but virtually. And uh, I've heard lovely stories of how uh, people are connecting internationally, globally, and actually extending their uh, Diwali celebrations, for instance, uh, uh, bigger through virtual means. Uh, there's also a lot of live stream prayers and uh, uh, worship services that are available. I know some of the Gurdwaras and temples are also open and of course with COVID safety plans in place people can visit safely in those areas. And are you confident that when in in the places the churches and other religious centers where people are still gathering with those rules is that is still is that still possible with the distancing and and masks and hand washing that that can continue? Yes, so as long as you have under 50 people and physically distanced, masking, washing hands, all of those things that you mentioned, uh, we will be also reviewing uh, safety plans and uh, visiting uh, places of worship as well to ensure that uh, people understand the uh, public health orders and also are applying them correctly. Uh, and I guess that's where we've been getting some email from people or some confusion or questioning of, of why that's allowed in, say, a religious gathering or in a church uh, or a building that can facilitate that, but not in other places where people might be able to gather and be able to follow those rules. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think it's important to know right now that uh, uh, it's the order is to take a step back and limit our social interactions Uh, to protect our loved ones and our uh, communities. I think uh, the order's focus is 
specifically in the areas that evidence has shown uh, that there's been transmission, such as private gatherings and uh, having events and parties at home, having more people at home, uh, you know, uh, such as fitness, uh, group fitness activities indoors. These sorts of activities have demonstrated transmission, and uh, that's why it's not safe to have people over at your home. Whereas if you can go to temples or restaurants uh, within your family household, you can do that still because there's COVID safety plans in place. Uh, there's been also some some questions raised, and I know at this point it's a recommendation for people living in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health to not travel uh, in and out of the health regions unless it's essential travel. Um, we're hearing from parents uh, in in some cases of of kids that are in professional sports who live kind of close to the border, uh, wondering why they can't travel even if it's say a ten minute drive. Do you think are, are those rules in place? Those or the the order specifically for sports uh, is that one that's necessary as far as that. That's where we were seeing the spread? Well, the regional restrictions in terms of current uh, uh, public health order, uh, British Columbians should only travel in and out of Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal regions if it's necessary essential travel, such as for work uh, or for things like medical appointment, of course. There's no official order restricting travel under these new regional orders, but the virus is spreading through communities in these regions, and we must do all we can to limit interaction. And I think that's that point, that we're trying to limit social interactions. Uh, therefore, uh, travel for social or recreational reasons should be paused. Uh, all right. I'm sorry. I thought the the order included uh, professional sports or organized sports, that they weren't to, to, to go from one health authority to the other. Oh, the order is to limit uh, the, um, the actual activity. So the uh, group fitness activity, whether it's um, indoor hockey or whether it's uh, indoor fitness class, those are uh, to be paused right now. Um, it's uh, not specific to travel for those purposes. All right. Um, something that came out of a conference call this morning uh, where you were talking to reporters was uh, contact tracers in Fraser Health and issues getting a hold of people. What are the issues there as far as uh, it, it sounds like contract uh, tra- contact tracers are calling people, uh, but in a lot of uh, cases, they're not answering the phone? Yeah, and uh, I think... Uh there's sometimes stigma, there's sometimes fear, and uh, sometimes it's unrecognized number. Uh, so uh, sometimes the phone numbers might show up as Fraser Health, sometimes it might show up as unknown number, and people might be hesitant to pick up phone, phone uh, calls from unknown people as well. So I think there's multiple factors, but what it is uh, leading to is, of course, uh, sometimes multiple, multiple calls for us to reach people. And that, again, also adds to the whole contact tracing time uh, timeline for us to get the relevant information, but of course for us to also notify contacts as well. So we're urging everybody, uh, if you've tested positive, if you're aware of it, or if you're not aware of it, but you've recently gotten tested, please do pick up a phone call that's from Fraser Health, or even if it might be an unrecognized number. Uh, yeah, I would imagine uh, too, uh, if, it, it's one thing to not pick it up when it says Fraser Health on it, but uh, like you say, if it comes up unknown or a number that's not recognizable, a lot of people just ignore those calls or assume they're scam callers. Exactly. I think uh, more and more people don't use phones for phone calls uh, for other purposes in terms of using it uh, for texting, messaging. So it's, I think, also a bit foreign for some of the folks to use phones at all, especially some of the age groups that and uh, demographics that we're trying to connect with. So I think just a reminder that we are trying to reach people by phone. We will have additional me- ways, platforms to reach people in the coming days, uh, but for now, we'd really appreciate people picking up their phones as they're getting a call after they've been getting they've gotten tested. Would it make more sense for contact tracers to text people rather than call them? Yeah, that's an area that we're looking at: uh, text messaging as well as web platform and uh, um, using additional technologies. And Dr. Lee, just before I let you go, because we are seeing such a big increase and we've seen these measures come in for Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health, um, how confident are you we are going to be able to bend that curve back down in your health region? 
I think we started to see positive uh, movement in our uh, region from what we heard from our municipal partners, what we heard from our community leaders, uh, business leaders. We're seeing seeing businesses actually review their worksite COVID safety plans, uh, reinforcing where there's been gaps. We're seeing community leaders speak out and speak up about how important it is that we all work together to bend the curve. And uh, we're also seeing uh, some of the impacts in terms of private gatherings uh, through municipal reviews uh, and inspections that are taking place that uh, even through the weekends, uh, in the past couple of weekends, we've not seen as many. So we're hoping all of these things together that we will be able to bend the curve again. All right, Dr. Victoria Lee, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Catherine Smart, the incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, sorry about that, Dr. Smart. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me today. Uh, When uh, the CMA says that we're at a tipping point, what exactly uh, is meant by that? Well, I think we're really concerned because we know we're now at day 247 of this pandemic and we are seeing COVID really escalating across many areas of the country. We're worried about our colleagues in the healthcare system. As you said in the intro, hospitals are filling up. ICUs are nearing capacity and in some centres they're over capacity. Physicians are overworked and Canadians are getting tired. Um, you know, we're up to, upwards now to almost 5,000 new cases a day of COVID across the country, 50 deaths per day. And we are seeing exponential growth in many areas of the country. And I think we're really concerned that if we don't take decisive action now, we are going to be paying with people's lives going forward. What kind of decisive action then would you and would CMA like to see? I think what we are really wanting is to see increased and improved collaboration between all levels of government with public health officials, really using the science of what we know to uh, make sure that the right precautions are being taken in different parts of the country. There are certainly areas where we know there needs to be more significant curtailment of people's behaviours because COVID is out of control in those regions. So we'd like to see a really a recommitment to what we know are good public health practices limiting social interactions, masking, good hand hygiene, um, and people really sticking to their households so that we can get this under control again. Uh, So those are things in the two biggest health authorities, population-wise, in BC, Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health. Uh, We are under a a two-week period right now with those orders, no social gatherings, uh, recommended no traveling in and out of the health authorities and the others that you just mentioned. Uh, We're seeing other provinces, Manitoba now at red alert, throughout the province, parts of Ontario. Uh, Is that not enough then, do you think, to at this point bend that curve back down? Well, I think it's really going to depend on how seriously Canadians take these recommendations. You know, I think if people take the public health guidance, actually do the measures, it will be successful. We've seen that demonstrated across the world in other centres where people have taken these lockdowns seriously, complied with these public health requests, the curve has been bent. Um, I think the worry is, are people actually following the guidelines of public health and are we being consistent? And if we are, I'm confident we can get this back under control. But I think it's really time for all of us as Canadians to really double down, take this seriously. It seems different this time, as you said, 246 days into the pandemic. When we first went into the phase where businesses were closed, restaurants were closed for dine-in, we really did see that lockdown, the Prime Minister going on TV daily, telling people, stay home if you can. It seems that even right now, where we're seeing the numbers surge, the the attitude is a little different. And we're being told from health officials as well that we know more about the virus now than we did in the very early days. And, And it feels that because of that, there's a bit of a different response to it. That are, are you saying then, or you're getting the impression or think that to the, that perhaps it's it's too laid back? Well, I think, you know, naturally over time, people become more complacent about things. I think this is tiring for people, understandably. I, there's not any Canadian who hasn't been impacted by COVID on some level. And I think it's, it's normal and natural for people to get tired of these restrictions. So I think we have seen some of that increased laxity across our society and I think what we're realizing and what this month has really brought to bear is that we cannot right now go in that direction people need to take this guidance seriously particularly in our urban areas where we're seeing the numbers escalate and if we don't take it seriously we are going to be paying with the lives of our friends and neighbours
Uh, when you talk about hospitals in some cases or healthcare systems near or at capacity, uh, that also seems different right now in that, again, in the beginning, we saw uh, elective surgeries cancelled, hundreds if not thousands of surgeries cancelled. Uh, in Vancouver here, we uh, saw officials clearing out the convention centre uh, to make a field hospital if necessary that ended up, it wasn't needed. There were concerns about being able to access ventilators if needed. Are those still concerns? I think they absolutely are. And, and, you know, how overwhelmed the healthcare system becomes is largely going to depend on what we do and how we act. Um, I think, but, you know, I think the other thing we've learned from those early days of COVID is there's other things that happen to people when we shut down the healthcare system. I think you're right. I think our early response was very aggressive. We really went in hospitals to only emergency procedures. Um, A lot of elective things were were curtailed, Um, but there was a lot of impact on that for Canadians' health in other ways. And I think that's why now you're seeing hospitals try to take a more tempered approach, you know, more short, shorter-term cancellations, really trying to keep the system running as much as possible because otherwise people are impacted in other ways that are equally concerning. And I think that's the challenge that's ahead of us is, is this dance and this balance of trying to make sure we're addressing existing and new healthcare issues that are coming up alongside covid um, but we know what we can do to bring the COVID numbers down. And I think that's what we have to anchor on is let's take those actions. Let's be responsible. Let's look after each other. Uh, would the CMA like to see governments bring in either on a provincial level or I suppose even on a federal level, a mandatory mask policy? I don't think the CMA has an official opinion about a mandatory mask policy across the country, because I think, again, what's challenging in Canada is it's a very... Um, diverse country with and we see that with COVID you know the impact and the incidence is very different in different jurisdictions so what makes sense in one place may not uh, make sense in another I think what we are definitely behind is that belief in our local public health expertise um, and really listening to your public health guidance where you live for what's the best advice for your situation because it's not really the same everywhere but what we do know is our public health officials are monitoring the numbers and the science in their locations and those are really the go-to people for what is the best decision for where you are. Uh, I'm thinking when you when you say that what comes to my mind is thinking of things like the Atlantic bubble and putting Mm -hmm. that part of the province whereas uh, we haven't really seen other provinces shut down uh, to, to that extent to that degree of an Atlantic bubble is that what you mean as far as finding solutions based on the region and population yes absolutely I think that's one example you know where I'm up in the Yukon uh, we are, you know, bubbled with BC and Northwest Territories. Um, so I think you're seeing different parts of the country make different decisions based on their population and, and the incidence of COVID and other characteristics that are important. And I think those are things that need to be taken into consideration. And I think that's why it's really important that Canadians are paying attention to what's going on where they are and and listening to their public health officials in those regions. And when we talk about those other uh, consequences, and you mentioned this, uh, when we saw in the first wave the the cancellation of surgeries, we did, sadly, uh, after that, people came forward that had very negative outcomes because their cancer surgery was cancelled or a surgery that they'd been waiting for for months was cancelled. And and if we're not talking about lives or if we're talking about livelihoods, there are also people that are very fearful that an economic shutdown is going to be devastating to them as well. Them as well. So it, it, I think that's part of it too in that trying to balance how do we make sure the healthcare system isn't overrun but still uh, not make decisions that will have those really negative impacts elsewhere. I think that's what makes COVID so difficult. As you've said, it, it impacts people in so many different ways across all sorts of aspects of their life, no question. But I think what we know is the economy cannot recover until the pandemic is under control. And the more decisive we are about controlling the pandemic, the quicker we're going to be able to get back to our normal lives. And I think that's what everybody wants. Right now, I think, you know, from our perspective at the CMA, health has to be the priority um, and we need to do what we can to support each other. How are healthcare workers doing? Again, we get updates as far as PPE and we get these large numbers of how many N95 masks have arrived and other gear have arrived. Is that important, do you think, for the public to know or how is that impacting how people in healthcare are actually being able to fare and deal with this? 
I think what's really important for the public to know is that physicians and nurses and other healthcare providers have been on the front line caring for patients since the beginning of this pandemic, and they're there for you now. You know, healthcare workers are doing what they can to keep people safe, to look after their patients, um, and they're, and we need our citizens and our and our friends and family to be doing what they can do to bring those numbers down to help keep healthcare workers safe as well and to keep the hospitals from becoming overrun. I think we've seen a lot of progress in areas with PPE and that's going more smoothly than it was before, but there's still challenges in different locations, challenges for physicians based in the community. Um, so again, the best way to support your healthcare workers is to do what you can as an individual to follow that public health guidance and keep yourself healthy. And do you think it's enough that kind of softer approach in recommendations and pleading with people to do the right thing rather than ordering them? I think that's always a challenge. I think there's pros and cons to to both directions. Um, You know, whichever way you go, there's going to be consequences. I think, you know, as Canadians, I think we have a culture of caring about our neighbours. I think we have a culture of kindness. I think we have a culture of, of valuing our leaders. Um, and I, I believe that we can appeal to Canadians to do the right thing from that perspective, uh, to support each other and realize this is something we have to get through together. We have to depend on each other in this situation, and we really need everybody to bring their best self to this fight. All right. Dr. Smart, we'll leave it there for today, but appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And joining me to talk about how the first few days have gone is Constable Tanya Visenton with the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. So just 11 days, so not a huge amount of time, but a lot of activity. What are some of the highlights on what this team has been involved with? Right. So just like you mentioned, uh, it's only been 11 days of this new initiative, which is the Neighbourhood Response Team. And just like you mentioned, the team was created in response to growing concerns from the citizens about crime in the city. Um, And the primary responsibility is for uh, this team to respond to the increasing calls for service regarding street disorder, uh, to make proactive patrols within the areas with growing street disorder problems, and to engage with residents in the community. So since the initiative began, our officers have responded to 300 calls for service and have seized 34 weapons. Uh, Are you surprised by the number of weapons? No, I mean, we... uh the, the neighborhoods that these people are targeting would be the Strathcona neighborhood, uh, Gramble Street, Yale Town, and those neighborhoods prior to this initiative being done, we have seen a lot of uh, weapons and and that would stem from uh, serious assault calls happen. So no, this isn't uh, very surprising at all, but it's it's great that these uh, weapons have been taken off the streets for sure. So how does it work in that? Is it a team that if somebody calls 911, it's then determined who will go and perhaps it would be this new team? Or is it more proactive that this team is out there looking for things? So it's a bit of both. So in a nutshell, um, I'll try to make this quick, but when somebody does call 911, that call, whatever it is, is prioritized. And normally... um, the calls would just be on our call board. And what we were noticing as of late was our officers, there was no time for us to respond to lower level calls, the the person in the doorway or the street disorder calls, um, as so many serious in-progress calls have been coming in. So our officers would be attending to those in-progress calls, whether they be assaults or domestics or whatnot. So these, but these lower level calls were adding up, causing significant concern in the city. Um, we've heard numerous, numerous uh, feedback from residents and business owners in the city of just their disappointment or their fear or, you know, their fear for their safety in the city. So teams were shifted around, reallocated, and now these members uh, respond to calls holding on the board that are lower level, or they will be doing proactive uh, work themselves and also engaging with people in the community. So it is a bit of, of everything. But there have, like I said, been 300 calls for service, and that is people physically calling uh, in, whether it be 911 or non-emergency, to make a call. So there's been about 300 so far. Because you can imagine a scenario then when somebody witnesses something going on, and some of the examples that the police at your department put out, one was a, a man who was trespassing at a fast food restaurant. Something like that might seem like a lower level call, but if officers arrive and then find out this guy's carrying a weapon or has an outstanding warrant, which I think in this case he did, does that change things? Yeah, for sure. So in that uh, one example you're talking about, we attended a fast food restaurant on Gramble and Smythe. And yeah, he was just kind of just standing there. But what we don't realize is this person, um, you know, 
being in that area was really disrupting the restaurant's ability to maintain lineups with physical distancing, which is another uh, concern that we're facing here in the city or, or, you know, globally, really, the pandemic. So in dealing with this man, we found out that he had an outstanding warrant for theft under, and he also had two knives, two homemade shanks, a modified sharpened wine crank, a slingshot, scissors, and other huge slew of improvised weapons. So he was taken to jail with charges recommended. And again, these weapons that he was carrying, you know, I have no doubt that they would be used in in a commission of a serious offense. Hmm. Uh, Are they the familiar faces as far as we often talk about the fact that in that case, he was taken to jail, charges recommended, but uh, unfortunately, we, we tend to see the same people on the street again. Are these familiar faces? And is this, yes, people are being arrested and caught only to go and do these crimes again? You know, I don't have um, the data on on the type of cr- uh, criminals that we're putting to jail and whatnot. Um, it, it, essentially, the, this stuff is happening, and, and that's the mandate of this team, is to get out there before any of these uh, street disorder situations escalate. One of the other examples put out was that officers stopped an individual uh, because he wasn't wearing a helmet while riding his bike. Uh, then it turned out that the bike was stolen. Is that, pr- is that common that, that officers stop people for not wearing helmets or, or, or th- infractions like that? I mean, yes, we, it's something that we do do if somebody is uh, not wearing their helmet or on the right in the sidewalk. That is a, a, a bylaw uh, offense, and um, that is something we would do. And in this case, uh, the bike was um, on our database as stolen. And thankfully, this owner of the bike did register his bike. He reported it stolen, and we were able to get that back, uh, sorry, that bike right back to him, and he was very pleased. Uh, so what is the future then of this? Is it a, is it a pilot project, or is this something that's going to stay in place? So it's a bit of both. So like I said, it was this was in response to the growing concerns of the neighborhood. And we heard the neighborhood and businesses loud and clear and they needed change and they want to change. So it is a new initiative and it was something that we you know, immediately did. But we're also going to be looking at a longer term solution to see how we can help the people that live in our city, work in our city and visit this city feel safe. Uh, I would imagine, and, and not listed in these calls, but are, is this also something that if somebody sees a car being broken into or sees uh, something like that that looks suspicious, that it would go to this team? You know what, it, it would just depend. You know, policing is very dynamic and very gray. So in that example, if someone's car or somebody's seen somebody break into a car, call 911. And basically when it's something in progress like that, we'll have officers attend immediately and doesn't matter where what team they belong to. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, the team is being kept busy and uh, will continue uh, to stay busy. Constable, thanks so much. Always good to have you on the program. Thanks for your time. Well, there's still some confusion on what the new rules are, what the restrictions are when it comes to the provincial health orders, particularly the ones that were brought out last Saturday, talking about this two-week attempt to break the spread of COVID, to stop those transmissions and bend that curve back down. We know that social gatherings are banned, but there is also some language around travel. And take a listen. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking last Saturday, addressing travel and especially travel when it comes to organized sport. We are strongly recommending that travel into and out of areas of Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health should be limited to essential travel only. Those who live outside these areas should not visit unless it is urgently required or essential and travel through only when needed. In addition, travel for sports into and out of this region is suspended for this period of time. So it's that last part, the suspension for travel of sports, for sports, that has some parents wondering what the rule, why these rules have been put in place and actually questioning whether or not the rules make sense. And Danny Miller is a parent who joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how, who, who, who is your kid? How old is your child and, and what does your child play? Yeah, well, I have uh, the three kids, but, uh, you know, the, the, the one uh, sort of relevant here is he, he's eight years old and he uh, plays uh, hockey as well as soccer. All right, so so a couple of teams organize sport, to, and from what I understand, you play at a rink that is close to you, probably the closest one to you, but it's technically in the different health authority. Yeah, the one of the challenges with the the order is it basically penalizes families who live on the wrong side of the street. So the the place where uh, he plays is 
it, it, we're, we're there for, for good reason, and it makes a lot of sense, and he's on a team. He's been there for multiple years. Um, but because of the way these rules are now being applied, uh, he's not allowed to go to the practice tomorrow night because he lives on the wrong side of um, the street. Um, whereas people who live in the same the, the proper district, if you will, can play all over the health authority, including on multiple teams and multiple cohorts. And, you know, the, basically the things that uh, Dr. Henry is attempting to fix um, with some of these rules, while well-intentioned, are not solving the problem because people are still playing on multiple teams that she doesn't want, while people who are playing maybe only on one team um, aren't allowed to go to their practices just because they happen to live in the wrong place. Right, so it seems kind of a total count- counterintuitive to what's actually what the intent is. 100%. Yeah. I, and do, do you know then, are people, from what I understand and, and from looking at some of this, it seems like kids in the organized sport and the parents with the new rules of, of no spectators inside, but it seems, like, it seems like kids have adapted quite well as far as distancing and being able to play these sports in a safe way. I think kids have done a fantastic job, and and certainly in the hockey world, the the hockey associations have done a fantastic job. I mean, there's been you know, very little, if if any, transmission of COVID uh, within minor hockey world and, and soccer as well. You know, other sports because it's not just hockey affected by this stuff. So um, these new rules are generally pretty punitive for an industry that is actually doing pretty darn well um, when dealing with this uh, pandemic. Uh, so to, to paint a picture then, if somebody is not uh, in, involved with sports and doesn't uh, kind of get, get what you're saying, uh, like you said, you're on, on the, technically the wrong side of the street, so you can't go across the street and play at a facility because it's technically in another jurisdiction. So it might be five minutes away, but you could technically get in your car and drive to a rink in, say, Whistler, an hour, hour and a half away, but because it's still in Vancouver Coastal Health, that would technically be allowed. Correct. If I live in Vancouver, I can go to Whistler, but I can't go to Burnaby or Coquitlam or Fort Moody or you know anything else in Fraser Health, um, which you know makes exactly zero sense when you're trying to control something because you know geography. If they're going to do something, um, there are lots of things they could do, but drawing a line down Boundary Road um, or you know the, the tunnel in, in between Richmond and, and Ladner is not would not seem to be the most effective approach. So what, what do you think they could do when it comes to kids and organized sport to, to keep kids playing, keep them on their teams, and to do it in a safe way? You know, I, I'm not sure, to be honest, that they need to do a ton because, like I said, I, certainly the sports my kids play have done a really good job of dealing with the safety. So I, I think the whole thing is, is a little bit of a, a um, you know, red herring in, in, in the sense that they're doing a pretty good job. But there are things you could do to bring it under control that are more targeted to the problem. Like, for example, if the concern is people playing in multiple teams within the same or other districts, the order could say you can only play on one team and let the family pick which team they're on. You know, there's things you could do that don't, like my son right now can't go to practice, as I said, um, which is basically telling me can't play hockey right now because you can't just move to another association. Well, and you would think that would be even that would completely defeat the purpose too, because then he would be moving and being with a whole different group of people. Exactly. So, and if you're not going to move somewhere else to be with a group of people, then he's literally being told he can't play hockey right now, um, in a sort of organized way. Um, and Dr. Henry has said, you know, participating in sports is important, etc. So, while you're taking a group of families, and it's not again not just hockey, it's hockey, soccer, volleyball, you know, anybody playing cross borders. Um, saying basically you cannot play this sport anymore is, I, I think it's uh, you know pretty onerous on a minority of families, but it's it's important, it's significant. And are there people then, to your knowledge, that are still playing on or kids that are playing on several different teams? Oh, absolutely, people are playing on several different teams. I mean, now they're playing within the their same health district, but yes, people are on different teams and different uh, skill programs. And, and mixing and matching. So, and also, you know, among different sports, and she's discouraging that, but, I mean, many people are, are doing it. 
Right. So discouraging that, but it's not like there's a specific order that says pick your team. And even, and again, I mean, we're talking about a two week period. Even it seems like it wouldn't be that onerous for somebody to say, pick one team and just play on that team for this two weeks. Well, right. But we're, we're hoping it's a two week period. Right. right? Because, uh, you know, the, the, the broader concern is that it isn't two weeks and it gets extended or even worse, gets extended and broadened. Um, and, and that's why, you know, if it's only 10 days, I think people, people can live with it. But the concern is that you're not going to see a decrease in numbers and things by the 23rd, and then it's going to get extended. And, you know, now you've got kids who are being told they can't play sports for, you know, potentially the next several months. And, and that just doesn't seem fair. Are you confident as a parent then with your child being in school around kids with different groups, maybe playing with kids at school, then playing in, in organized sports? Like you said, the, the sporting teams and organizations have done a good job of bringing in the rules. Are you confident that the, that, that, that scenario is safe? Yeah, well, we don't. I mean, our, our family doesn't have that significant concern with the whole school thing. I understand that's a big issue around, but you know, it's not as big an issue for us. No, I just meant with kind of the um, the exposure to how many people. I know some people are very concerned about how many people in total that they're exposed to, and and the more you do, obviously, the more people that you're going to be around. But but like you said, if, if we're doing it in a safe way and people are are being responsible about it, it seems like there is a way to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say. I mean, generally, yes. I mean, we're we're fine with it. I would say that is a little eye opening to say you know adults can be with six people, but kids are with you know, hundreds of people between school and sports and, and whatever. I mean, there is a little bit of a disconnect there, but I don't think we've ever felt that kids are not safe in terms of what they're they're doing at school or extracurriculars or other activities. Uh, so what will you do then? Obviously, this two-week period, uh, we're going into the first weekend of that. And and what can you do as a parent then? Right now, we're, you know, the, the official wording of the order came out. See, and, until yesterday, uh, we thought that practices would be okay, but competition wasn't allowed across the line. Um, and then, uh, in fact, that's what Dr. Henry uh, sort of I- I implied uh, through guidance that we'd, we'd seen. Um, and then yesterday comes out, and it was much more um, firm and, and uh, draconian than that. So we're absorbing it and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, I, I don't know, um, you know, maybe finding some lessons to do in, in our uh, district or renting ice. I, I, I don't know. Um, and that's the problem, is we don't know that there's these rules out there now that that are really having a disproportionate impact without, to, to, to our mind, without much upside, because they're not solving the problem that she's trying to solve. Do you feel like perhaps people in your scenario where you are living on the border of the two health authorities that you got you got kind of overlooked and that the, the the meat of the issue is to try and stop movement and to get these numbers down, but maybe there wasn't a lot of attention paid to there is going to be a certain number of families who are on this border that are going to get to the, the kind of an unintended consequence? Yeah, I don't think that there was an appreciation whatsoever of the fact that people actually are on teams. Um, that like there are teams doesn't affect my my kids, but there are teams out there that are combinations of people from different health authorities, just the way the team's made up. So half that team can now go to practice and half can't, depending where the practice is. So I think that I don't think it was intentional, of course, but I, I think there's a lack of awareness on what the actual situation is in terms of how some of these minor sports uh, teams are formed and how how they're executed. People do not stay within their, their their city boundaries necessarily anymore. All right. Well, we'll wait and see because, as we know, we've also been told that there could be changes and tweaks and, like you said, a possibility of extension. So we'll wait and see what happens next. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, we have certainly heard the phrase be kind several times in the last few months, probably more than we've ever heard it before. And today is World Kindness Day. We thought, why not take a little time to look at being kind, but not only why people do it, but the actual changes that it makes, the chemical changes and why it feels so good, not only to be behind a kind act, but also to even witness a kind act. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Meg Holden, a professor and director of SFU Urban Studies. Meg, thanks so much for being with us. Hello, Jill. Hi. Uh, Talk a bit about this. What actually happens to us when we are being kind, when we go out of our way to do a kind thing? 
I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm a social scientist. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to explain the biological pathways. But what you said is, per- is absolutely true. And that's what we've noticed during the pandemic, that when we take um, a, a socially informed approach, what's called uh, an approach that looks at the social and structural determinants of health, that we are more effective in our interventions to cause people to feel a little bit more in control of what's going to happen to them in these profoundly uncertain times. So, and, and you're right, that, that it's not just receiving a good deed that is helpful to, to people's um, ability to, to feel connected and to feel optimistic and positive and able to proceed with their lives, but it's also just the the sense that they can do something for someone else, that they have something to contribute. And that's the other side of the coin, that, that being kind is not a one-way street. It's not charity. It's actually essential to the whole social contract. And do you think we've seen that or we've experienced it more during the pandemic? Because while we've talked a little bit or a lot, I guess, about some of the negative things, be it fights in stores, people hoarding toilet paper and not caring if their neighbors got any, uh, we've certainly seen it bring out the bad in people. But on the on the bright side, we've also seen some really amazing acts of kindness. Sure, absolutely. And there is this, there is a, there's sort of a hidden pandemic, if you will, of the the losses to our social connections um, behind the overt, you know, public health crisis of the, of the pandemic. So 70% of Canadians are concerned in the pandemic about maintaining their social ties and what happens to the way they think about their lives if they can't maintain those social ties. At the same time, we are being forced to reduce those social ties. So there's a real push and pull of factors at play. Uh, and that's one of the things, too, that we've seen people step up but when we've talked about checking in on your neighbours, making sure people are okay, obviously doing that in a safe way, not going into to strangers' houses or, or in putting putting yourself in that situation. But uh, in the past where we might have thought, oh, well, somebody else will do that, or they must have family, or it's a stranger, why would I do that? Uh, it seems like we've kind of opened our eyes to the fact that there are people that, that not only during a pandemic need that, but but any time would need that. Yeah, there's a craving for it. We have uh, one of my students um, who works in community gardening down in in Surrey noticed that there were a lot of of people who were confined to their homes in in that neighborhood in Newton. And uh, although it was um, it was the middle of the winter, she was able to leverage not just the produce from the garden. She was able to leverage um, other kinds of donations from 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 all kinds of different sources in order to deliver food baskets um, to residents who were completely, you know, and they're, none of them are connected to one another um, or to necessarily to the garden itself. But there is this sense that we're, we are, we're looking for, for ways to contribute at the same time as, yeah, there are, there are real reasons to um, that people are acting out on in terms of their suspicions of, other people um, and and the fact that just breathing on somebody wrong could actually make them very sick. So there's there's good reasons on both sides. Um, one of the things that we're really pushing for in our approach to getting the social policy side of this of our response to the COVID pandemic recognized is to look at some of those weak ties. You know, like the the sort of the neighborly stuff that um, doesn't take you know, a whole lot of understanding or knowledge about somebody else's condition in order to recognize that there's, that there's value in knowing their name, that there's value in uh, checking in and just to make sure that uh, if something looks a little bit strange uh, from the outside of their home or, or the fact that there's uh, mail piling up, that we know that there's somebody who's going to um, be connected, that there's, and, and we've noticed that just, you know, just have being able to answer the question, um, are there three or four people who you could call on in a time of need? Just saying yes to that question means that that person is more likely to engage with um, to engage with civic events when they come up to have an emergency plan. Um, and it's really a, it's a chain reaction that uh, that occurs when we just practice these small acts of kindness.
Do you think there's a line, though, because on, on the one hand, we have that kind of knowing your neighbors, like you said, if you notice that mail is piling up or do you have people that you can call? Uh, then there's that other, I think people kind of get their back up a bit with privacy and we want privacy. We don't want somebody in our business maybe popping over unannounced. Is there a balancing act there as far as kindness and sociability, sociability and, and, and also going over the line? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's that problem that you mentioned. There's also the problem that our social ties are connected to financial worries. So uh, for those of us who have been hit financially by the pandemic, and there are lots of them, that causes us to be less um, less charitable, less uh, willing to entertain new social connections because we don't know what's coming next for us. Um, there are more concerns about our ability to combat racism and to understand the fact that the that the pandemic has different effects on people, per- particularly because of the color of our skin, not even because of our income status. And that we're seeing show up in the statistics of who's being hit and how hard they're being hit by the pandemic. And that can leave a lot of us feeling kind of powerless and kind of like even more like staying inside and staying out of other people's business. So it's a tricky thing to figure out how to reach out when we physically can't reach out and shake someone's hand. Do you think, though, there is a direct connection then between public health, between a healthy community and the kindness or the connections within that community? Yeah. And so very excited to see the latest report from the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Theresa Tam, who uh, just this month, uh, well, at the end of last month, um, and she, it's called From Risk, Risk to Resilience, an Equity Approach, and clearly putting front and center um, these what seem to be kind of marginal to core health concerns, but recognizing that they're not, that the fact of inequality, um, the fact of not really having a good sense of how important our social ties are and different kinds of social ties, how important that is to us in, as Canadians in getting out of this pandemic and getting out of it in a way that that gives us hope about um, about our diverse and um, you know crisis ridden kind of uncertain future together. And is it the pandemic? Do you think, or why do you think it would be the the pandemic that kind of wakes people up? When when we've talked about uh, this in the past, whether it's the opioid crisis where where people are literally dying because they're on their own and they're alone and using, uh, there have been other other issues or, or things that that really should bring people together. But it seems like maybe it's just the the scale of this that it is a global pandemic that that's affecting everybody. It's a global pandemic. I mean, just in my sector, you know, in the university sector, 90% of students uh, globally have have been sent home. This is not something that affects people who make, you know, who are considered to make particular behavioral choices or lifestyle choices, which is often how the drug crisis is cast. Um, This is literally affecting the whole world. And so I think that there is a potential here to think differently about you know, how does it make you feel to not be able to um, know that, you know, you'll be able to make a new friend next year, to make a connection um, in your life, to, to even connect with your family at Christmas time or um, at other important, you know, weddings and funerals and other important kinds of family celebrations. These are, these are, these are big existential questions that we're facing now. And maybe the, the prospect of treating sociability, just these, basic, you know, things that we learned in kindergarten um, as, as, a, as one of the keys to our effective response, maybe that is enough to push us towards action. All right. Well, certainly uh, couldn't hurt. And it is something to think about for sure. We will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.